This week, we celebrate the life of Walt Cunningham, who died on January 3rd this year. And to do this, we're joined by Francis French, who has written about Walt on a number of occasions. If you have any awesome Walt Cunningham stories, please let us know via our social media pages at Space and Things 1 on Twitter and at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook or via the contact form on our website. And please consider hitting the share button to let your friends know about our podcast. But right now, please enjoy episode 124 of the Space and Things Podcast. Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles, and welcome to episode 124 of our podcast. Today is our first recording session of 2023. Uh, We hope that you enjoyed the pre-recorded episodes over the last couple of weeks, but now we're back to the weekly recording format and hopefully will be for a while. So Emily, did you have a good festive season? Oh, yeah. I had a great holiday season. I got a lot of relaxation in. Now I'm back at work and I'm looking forward to 2023. I'm thinking this is I don't want to jinx anything, but I'm feeling hopefully pretty good about this year. So we'll see. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, we will. And you were pretty prolific over Christmas as well. I had a couple of emails drop into my inbox saying that you'd release some articles on Medium. Yes. So what did you write about? Well, I, these were cross-posted to the Celestis Memorial Space Flight blogs. Okay. So there's a, some similar material, but uh, one of the pieces was about basically the Nichelle Nichols Foundation, which just went live a few weeks ago. I highly recommend if you're interested in donating to like a nonprofit or something, you may want to uh, look into that one as well. It, it's great. Their aim is really to help diverse populations reach success in STEM, and they're doing a lot of great things already. I think they have like a talk program, like a program of special speeches, and they're going to have one this month. So check out their page. Um, I forgot the actual name of the website, but I'm sure Dave will put it in the show notes. I think it's uh, NichelleNicholsFoundation.com or something like that, but I'm sure he'll put the uh, my story in the show notes, which has the link. So that's something to look at. And of course, Nichelle Nichols played uh, Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek, and she is a huge civil rights icon. So uh, just was an amazing lady. And uh, we're going to fly her. Celestis is going to fly her on the Enterprise flight this year, which is going to be awesome. And another story I wrote uh, was about basically uh, the moon, why we explore it. It's sort of making a case for why should we still go to the moon? Because I've talked to some people who are like, you know, the moon's just dead. It's this big, you know, it's just rock. Why do we go there? And it's like, well, there are actually some good reasons to go check it out. And um, I also brought in the fact that Astrobotic, part of the commercial lunar lander program, I, I don't think it's called that, but NASA has a commercial program with them. Basically, they're going to land the first commercial lander on the moon this year, which is incredible. And it's going to be the first time to my knowledge, that anybody's landed a lander on there in the United States since 1972, which was Apollo 17. That's a long time. I mean, that's crazy, that's over, isn't it? That's insane. Yeah. I mean, because I was thinking about it, I was like, that is a really long time. I mean, we've sent other spacecraft to the moon. We've sent a few spacecraft to the moon that have collided with the moon, or I should say crash landed on the moon. But um, this one is going to make a landing, an actual controlled landing. So that's going to be amazing. So um, 
we have so much to look forward to in 2023 this year. I mean, it, you know, between that, hopefully seeing Starship whenever that goes up, there's a lot happening this year. It's going to be freaking incredible. Yeah, absolutely. But as I dropped into the episode last week, Emily may not have heard that bit, but uh, I did reopen the files to make sure we let people know. We had some sad news at the start of the year. Apollo 7 astronaut Walt Cunningham passed away on January the 3rd, age 90. So today we're going to spend some time to talk more in depth about Walt and his career. And to do this, we're joined by our friend Francis French, author of many space history books and all-round good guy. Before we get to that interview, though, Emily wrote a short obituary for the Space Hipsters Facebook page, which I think is appropriate to start with. Walter Cunningham, who passed away on January 3rd at age 90, was the original All-American boy to use the title of his classic 1977 memoir. Starting as a Marine fighter pilot in Korea, he flew 54 nighttime missions. He then entered the Marine Corps Reserve and earned his BA and his MA in physics at UCLA. In October 1963, he was selected to be part of Astronaut Group 3, becoming NASA's third civilian astronaut after Neil Armstrong and Elliot C. He was initially assigned to what would have been Apollo 2, but the Apollo 1 tragedy of January 1967 changed NASA's lunar flight manifest. In 1968, Cunningham's time to launch finally arrived, and Apollo 7 lifted off on October 11th, that year from Launch Complex 34. In charge of Apollo 7 spacecraft systems, Cunningham was instrumental in the success of the Apollo Command and Service Module's first flight. Here's how he described Apollo 7's launch in a NASA Johnson Oral History article. Well, it's a, on the Saturn rockets, it's a ride that builds up to, oh, five and a half, six Gs, something like that, which is not too rough considering that you're lying down. But a lot of people forget that you're starting off at zero. So it's not a sudden acceleration. It's not like a catapult shot when you're on an aircraft carrier. I mean, that is like that. And you see spots in front of your eyes. With this, you're just starting at at zero velocity, and it's just a slow building. It's like a train behind you that is just building up. Cunningham went on to run the Skylab branch of the astronaut office and what is an underrated force responsible for the ultimate success of that program. He retired from NASA in 1971, and in 1977, he published The All-American Boys, a memoir that functions as the ball four of the early NASA human spaceflight program. Candid, hilarious, and sometimes abrasive, The All-American Boys remains a spaceflight literature classic. It is recommended reading for anyone wanting to discover what it was like during NASA's Apollo heyday. A short excerpt. In the 60s, NASA set out to fashion its image, but the myth of the superhero astronaut was purely a creation of the news media. Most of us found it flattering and easy to go along with. Some even cultivated that image, but few could measure up to it. Most of us recognized it was unlivable only slightly before we realized we were stuck with it for the rest of our lives. We will remain in that image until the public takes off its rose-colored glasses and begins to see us as people. Cunningham was a delightful fixture at space events and was much loved by the space community. We send our deepest condolences to his wife, Dot, his family, his former colleagues, and his friends. We lived in the golden age of manned spaceflight. We've been in space now for over 40 years. The first 40 years of aviation, we went from just barely flying to, to jet transports. You know, 
And now we haven't moved that far since we went into space. The days through Apollo will be remembered. There'll never be another time like that again. Even when we go to Mars, it will be different. First, I'd like to welcome uh, back to our show, uh, Francis French, one of our favorite space authors. So just try to tell us a little bit, you know, put him in context. When did he arrive at NASA and really, you know, what kind of environment did he arrive into, if that makes sense? You know, what was his sort of point in being there? Sure. Um, thanks for asking me because I got to work with Walt quite a long time on various books and got to ask him those very questions. Um when he first got interested in the space program, he was working um, out by Santa Monica here in, in Southern California, and um, he was driving and he heard on the radio um, Alan Shepard's flight, the very first American uh, human space flight. He ended up pulling over to the side of the road. He was so excited and ended up screaming at the top of his lungs, go, 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 and some other words, which <laughs> I won't repeat on your podcast. Um, he was so excited about it. He was already working in that kind of field. He had been a Marine Corps pilot, um, and he would started working in space stuff, the RAND Corporation um, out at UCLA and a couple of other places on space-related things. So two years later, he was at NASA, and the reason um, they chose him was because they were not just looking for test pilots anymore. They still chose test pilots in his group, people like Mike Collins and Dave Scott and people who had incredible careers. But they were also looking at people like Gene Cernan, who weren't test pilots, they were pilots, um, but chose some other people like Walt, who'd been pilots, but also had that kind of science background. So for the very first time in that third group, NASA were beginning to look a little bit wider, beginning to go, let's get some people in who we know can fly airplanes and therefore should be able to fly spacecraft. But they also have this science background that's going to be useful to us as we get into Apollo. Did that make him an outsider when he first joined? Well, Walt was always talking about the pecking order and astronaut politics when he was talking about his time at NASA. That was something that he was quite interested in, um, as were most people, maybe not quite so vocally as Walt, but um, they were interested in who's going to fly, who's going to fly first, how do you get the good missions? And that was something that Walt tried to figure out. Years later, he realized that, um, to your point, he actually probably was sort of marginalized a little bit, along with a couple of other guys who had been chosen for pretty much the same reasons as him. They weren't the top pilots in the country. They were great pilots. They weren't the top pilots. They had that extra academic science background. And he realized that from day one, Deke Slayton, the head of the astronaut office, probably chose where you were going to fly and how much you were going to fly from the moment you showed up, if not before. And Walt was not going to be very high on the list of top pilots getting the top commands or anything like that, unfortunately for him. All right. So obviously, um, Walt did fly in space. He flew in Apollo 7. You interviewed him for your uh, for your, uh, your book. I think it was in the shadow of the moon. And the thing that was notable about that book is it was really the first book I read other than Walt's you know, own book, The, uh, the All-American Boys. It was really the first book I read that talked about Apollo 7. Like, there's certain Apollo missions that nobody talks about. And that's, I think one of them is like Apollo 9, and one of them is Apollo 7, because they weren't glamorous flights, if that makes sense. So tell us a little bit about what, you know, Walt told you about working with Isley and with Sherrod, you know, and about, you know, his role on the flight. He was a lunar module pilot without a lunar module. <laughs> Indeed, and Thank you for saying Don Isley's name right. So few people do. Um, I've heard 
Don Easel, Don Eisel, and even though if people know how to say it, they never spell it right. You're, you're exactly right. That was one of the reasons I wanted to write that book, um, Apollo 7, Apollo 9. Um, I was wondering, what is it about these missions and who are these people? This is a time where Wally Shirai was still around, um, both of Don Eisley's widows, and I got to work with Wally, with Walt, with the Eisley family to try and work out what was Apollo 7 and who on earth was Don Isley? Because nobody had any stories <laughs> about him that I could find in print. And so I, I really tried to dig into to him. Wally and Walt had written books before, and I was told um, you'll never get them to agree on an account of Apollo 7 because they both disagreed with what happened. They fortunately, a little bit like divorced parents who are going to come together for the sake of the kids. It was one of those things like, well, he may have said that. I don't agree, but we'll let that one. We'll let that stay. And that was kind of fun point counterpoint in the book. And Walt is wonderful for that stuff. Very opinionated. Definitely going to tell you what he thinks. And um, I had a wonderful time working with him on that book. In fact, he wrote the foreword for the book as well. But Apollo Seven, why it's important. So Walt's journey was an interesting one. He was chosen um, with Wally Shirar to command the mission for Apollo 2, which was going to be a repeat of the Apollo 1 mission, basically test out the Apollo spacecraft in Earth orbit, make sure it all works. Wally Shira was given this command and thought, this is not a mission that needs to happen. Apollo 1 is going to do all this if it goes well. He argued so much against being given that mission that they canceled the mission on him and actually gave him no mission at all. So he managed to talk <laughs> um, what cunning him out of a flight. It wasn't so good. Unfortunately, oh they... The backup crew for Apollo 1, who ended up being on Apollo 9, were pretty much targeted to fly the lunar modules. So what Deke did was move um, Walt and Wally and, and Don Isley over to the Apollo 1 backup crew. So they became the backups for Apollo 1. Wally Shira told me something in that book he never told anywhere else, which is he was told by Gus Grissom and Deke Slayton in a meeting, you're going to be back up on this mission and then you and your crew are not going to fly as a crew ever again. This is That's it. You're done. You've, you've already had your last mission, Wally. Uh, we're only keeping you around as a backup, which he was very upset with in some ways because it meant Walt Cunningham and Don Isley were going to have to wait around for another crew. But um, as we know, there was the tragic Apollo 1 fire and the backup crew became the prime crew. So the reason Walt Cunningham ended up flying was primarily because of the, the death of the Apollo 1 crew. Otherwise, he would have flown down the line on some other mission. It meant Apollo 7 was going to be this very first time to test a new spacecraft, which was a huge deal. Um, most test pilots really want to be the person that tests the first mission. And uh, that mission was an incredible one. It was one that's immediately got forgotten because Apollo 8 went to the moon just a few months later. And then a few months after that, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. But at the time, Apollo 7 was it. This was the first time three Americans had been in space together. This was the first time they had tested that Apollo spacecraft. A little bit like what we just saw with Artemis, except with people. This is like the checkout, shakedown flight, make sure everything works. Very, very exciting at the time. But it wasn't without controversy, right? So it's a contentious story, and um, not that Emily knows anything about um, stories of space flights where people are supposed to have mutinied and they didn't actually mutiny. Um, this is a similar one. Um, there is some truth to it, um, but it's not the way most times this story's been told. It, if you read about Apollo 7, it's often written as if three crew members are hurling insults to the ground and saying, we're not going to do that, Nina, Nina, you can't make us come up here and stop us, you know. <laughs> That's not what happened. This is a more complicated story. Um, Wally Shira had been known as a very jovial pun maker and prankster. Um, and then his friends died on the Apollo 1 fire. And he was given the task of, hey, they just died. Now it's your mission. Now you've got to fly it. You can imagine he became very serious very quickly. Um, he'd already decided this was going to be his last flight. He already was in a little bit of a bad mood because he'd been told he weren't even going to fly this one. And um, he took it very, very seriously um, to make 
sure the spacecraft was as perfect as it could be. A little bit too much, some of the engineers at the time said. They found that he was actually um, complaining about things that they're like, you know, we can't fix everything. We can note that for the next one, but we can't make this um, the absolute perfect spacecraft. We can just keep working towards it. But at some point, we've got to fly the thing. So he already was in a little bit of a bad mood before the flight and determined not to make any changes to the mission. Um, he also came from a different philosophy, which has been reflected in um, who commanded the International Space Station. You'll see that the Navy folks, are, and Emily will relate to this, if you are in charge of an aircraft carrier out to sea, the mainland can advise you, but you are in charge. Um, where if you are an Air Force pilot, you are more likely to be listening to the ground, to the control tower and being told turn left, turn right. It's a slightly different philosophy. And Wally was like, the ground can advise me, but I am in command of this mission. And um, when some things happened during the mission that um, annoyed him, um, he, for example, they wanted to move the television show up. They were going to do live television from space and they wanted to do it before he'd had the chance in the flight plan um, to check the electrical circuit. Now, a spark from electrical circuit was probably what killed the Apollo 1 crew. He didn't want to mess around with that just for a public relations change. So he said, nope, we'll do it when we're ready. And then when they did it, it was great. But um, he was in a little bit of a bad mood. He got a head cold. Um, Don Isley also got the head cold. Again, some accounts say all three members got the head cold, but Walt did not get the head cold. He was very adamant about that. He was the one who stayed healthy. But Wally also was feeling grumpy because the they were trying to make two people sleep at the same time and one person stay awake and do this sleep schedule. If you've ever looked inside an Apollo spacecraft, imagine two people trying to whisper through the day while somebody else sleeps. Nobody was getting any sleep. Everybody was grumpy. Well, he had a head cold. He didn't want to make the changes. So he just started saying, nope, we're not going to change that. We're going to do it the way it is in the flight plan. That didn't go down so well with a number of things, um, but they got through the mission fine. Okay, I have a follow-up, which actually has come from one of our patrons. He didn't know it was going to be a follow-up, but it's a follow-up. He starts with an anecdote which is unrelated, uh, and then I'll get to the question. So the anecdote, I was privileged to have breakfast with Walt at the very first Space Fest in Arizona in 2007. Though he flew for NASA as a civilian scientist, I was always struck by how much he loved talking over coffee about his Marine Corps experiences in places like Okinawa. On that visit, I purchased an autographed version audiobook of the All-American Boys, which he read himself. It was brutally honest and a fun way to take Walt home with me. So here's the follow-up question which he has. In their books, both Michael Collins and Al Warden describe Walt as a complex character in the astronaut office. Might his strong personality also have impacted his post-Apollo 7 opportunities? That is a very interesting question. Um, Walt was definitely opinionated. Um, I only knew him later in life, but he delighted in saying he was opinionated. He delighted in being the tell it how it is kind of guy. Um, that did not always work well in an astronaut office where everybody was trying to work out what the secret was to get the missions. And if you said that too much, that didn't always go down well. If you went to Deke Slayton and said, hey, I want to be on the next mission, that was not only not going to get you on the next mission, that might actually put you back a little bit. Most people realized if you just worked hard and kept your head down, you were going to get the best chance that you could get. That may not have worked well for Walt, but I think what really didn't work well for Walt was being on that mission with uh, Wally Sharar and Don Isley and the disputes with the ground that were, like I say, were minor. But it did mean that when they got back, Chris Kraft, the head of the flight operations, said to Deke Slayton, I don't really want to work with any of that crew again. Wally had already decided to go. Don was put in a difficult situation because Don was a little bit more of a follower than a leader is what most people who work with him have said. And so he kind of adopted the tone of his commander. And he said a couple of things to the ground 
when in fairness, they messed up some commands and, and locked the um, the navigation console that he was using, um, sent, sent commands that actually made it useless and he had to fix it. He wasn't so happy, but he said it in ways that were less diplomatic than other astronauts had in previous flights. And so both of them had sort of a black mark against them in that way. If you listen to the transcripts, though, um, Walt Cunningham didn't say anything with, with the possibility, he says, of like one possible comment. He wasn't the guy who was making these things. Um, the trouble was, if you didn't speak up, you could be seen as being complicit. Anybody who knows military command knows you can't be sitting in a tiny Apollo spacecraft and start disagreeing with your commander on air. But um, Walt had been tarred with the same brush, sadly. Chris Craft was somebody who delighted in taking astronauts down a peg or two. We know that with Al Warden, we know that with Scott Carpenter, and we know the justice or otherwise of those individuals. So Walt was in a, in a tough situation. However, Deke Slayton had, he said in his own book that he had uh, already decided Walt would probably fly that first flight and then be moved over to Skylab. So Walt was probably not going to go to the moon in any capacity. He was kind of considered a sciencey kind of guy, and that's where he was probably going to go. So as you just said, uh, obviously, Walt, he didn't fly again, but he was moved to the Skylab program where I'm not going to get too into this. Everybody's like, oh, God, dang it. There's Emily in Skylab. But um, I believe he did retire from NASA in 1971. And then uh, in 1977, he dropped in what was, in my opinion, one of the greatest astronaut books of all time. And I'm going to just read... I'm going to read a little tiny part of it because this is when I first read this, I was like, oh, my God. I could almost hear the caller's pulse throbbing at the other end of the line. We have a copy in the office, but the boys are afraid to open it. I hear it tells everything. I sure hope your book isn't going to get into a lot of that gaming stuff. As I hung up, it occurred to me that the world might not be ready for everything. Why another book on the astronauts? Well, why not? Why three volumes on the fall of the Roman Empire? Why a sequel to The Happy Hooker? Oh, my God. So, yeah, probably a lot of people won't agree with me. I think it's just a classic of space literature. I mean, he he goes to town on a lot of people. But I, I want to add, it's hysterical in a lot of parts. If you haven't read the book yet, by the way, here's your sign to go get, get it or the audio book, which I haven't listened to, but I know Walt narrates it. Put that book in context as far as like space literature, astronaut biographies are concerned. When I was working with Al Wooden to write Falling to Earth, what we tried to do was write a book that had been written in the 70s. Because if you look at those early books, Mike Collins, Carrying the Fire, and, and uh, Walt Cunningham's book, which is very different, but also the 1970s, you look at Jim Irwin's book, um, you look at Buzz Aldrin's book, uh, Return to Earth, I believe, which is the um, probably a little bit a prequel to the tell-all feel, um, although it's mostly about Buzz being very honest about his depression and alcoholism and other issues that he was going through. But it did they were all kind of stripping away the superhero veneer that had been built up in the 50s and somewhat in the 60s. It was mostly gone in the post-Watergate era of the 70s, but nevertheless, nobody had actually really lifted the lid and, and kind of done the Prince Harry version of uh, <laughs> the, the space program. You know, it was, uh, it was an exciting thing. And um, it is one of those books that really does... Um, give you all the office gossip um, at a time when none of that had been told and kind of gives you a lot of behind the scenes. Um, for a while, you couldn't find it. I remember going into the Seattle Public Library when I was um, backpacking around America as a tourist from England and finding a copy in there that I couldn't take check out. I could sit there and read it for an hour or two and, and finally get to read the copy, but that was the closest I got. Um, now, as you mentioned, I think it's the only astronaut memoir that's not only um, read by the astronaut as an audiobook, but it's unabridged because no, normally they, they, they sort of condense them. His is 
9,000 CDs or whatever that one is. It's a huge book. And, it, you know, to be unabridged, he must have spent a lot of time in a recording studio. But it's a great book. He really does get into um, the stories of people who are slightly less successful are always more interesting because sometimes they have a little bit of a grudge or sometimes they're able to tell you things that the person that has, you know, the heroic career is not able to say. So he does tell it how it is, warts and all, in his opinion. Not everybody agrees with his opinion, but it's a, it's a wonderful book. I think after Carrying the Fire, it's probably the other essential one to read um, and one that I would highly recommend people to read. Um, but he does go into why Apollo 7 was a good mission as well. And that is something that uh, you know, we talked about the controversies. It is important to remember this was a dramatically successful flight. Um, you know, October of 1968, the fire on Apollo 1 had been, you know, in January of 1967. So we're less than two years later. I mean, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine many big organizations having a tragedy of that level. They'd still be writing the report, you know, a year and a mm -hmm. half later. And in this case, they'd fix the spacecraft. They had this flight, 11-day flight, and it was flawless. That was part of the problem in that they front-loaded the, the flight. And, and Walt himself, you know, told me he thought they were going to come home early, not for any enormous bad reason, but something was going to fail that was going to bring them home early. So they had to do everything up front quickly. And then they were in, they ended up being up there for 11 days to the point where they did way more than was on the flight plan. They actually did absolutely so much that the, the NASA felt confident, confident to say, we're going to send the next one to the moon with one engine. We're not even going to send a lunar module. as a lifeboat like they had on Apollo 13. We're just going to go to the moon. We're going to break into lunar orbit. So that engine has to work to bring those three people home. That's how confident they were. So they tested the navigation system, the guidance system, the propulsion system, all the life support. Everything worked wonderfully. So it does get a little bit overshadowed by some of the, the interaction with ground mission control, and it does get forgotten because Apollo 8 and 11 happened so quickly after it. But it was one of the most important missions. If that had not worked, um, they may not have got to land on the moon in 1969, because we're talking the autumn before the summer they landed on the moon. I mean, everything had to go really well on those final few missions. If something major had happened on that, the Russians may have said, look, you didn't get to the moon in the, before the decade was out. Who knows? Also, we did. We do have to mention it. I know a lot of people are groaning out there. Talk about Walt's contribution to Skylab. So both Walt and Rusty Schweiker from Apollo 9, who we, you and I have talked about a lot, Emily, um, both kind of got stuck with the same sad story here. They were both great pilots. They were both sciencey people. They both did wonderful things on their flights and yet got kind of stuck into Skylab with a promise that they were going to fly Skylab as a commander and uh, did a lot of work there. I, I seem to remember Walt telling me that there was a couch in Skylab when he got there. There was literally going to be a couch on the wall. I mean, he's like, why in zero gravity do people need a couch to sit on? This is stupid. Let's get rid of it. There was every possible experiment that every scientist had wanted to do, quite understandably. They're like, I want to get this on the Skylab mission. So there was just this huge pile of things that everybody wanted to do. And Walt with his engineering mind, as he told it, came in and said, let's just start going through this, winnowing it down, working out what we're actually going to do. And uh, Walt says by the time he left, he got it in pretty good shape to the point where he takes credit for a lot of what later happened. Unfortunately, as the Apollo mission started happening and people came back from the moon, um, they had a lot more office politics clout than Walt and Rusty did. And so they came back and said, well, they can be backup commanders, but um, we're going to take the flights. And so um, both Rusty and Walt were offered um, those backup opportunities and both decided, nope, I, we don't think we're actually going to fly. And Walt decided there's no point in me even staying around. So he left NASA. I'm quite wow. disappointed in that one. As one does, uh, I was talking to Al Warden once, as one does. 
And uh, he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, ask Walt about handball. And I was like, what? Oh, geez. And I never got a chance to do either, to follow up with either of them on this, which I regret. Can you enlighten us a little bit about this? I can enlighten you somewhat about this. Um, yeah, so Mike Collins and Al Warden both um, talked about this quite a bit uh, in that Mike Collins was probably the undisputed champion of handball in the office. And just like anything <laughs> with a group of highly competitive pilots, that wasn't going to stand. People were going to be nipping at his heels trying to, to do that. Um, Mike said that Al Warden was a close second, um, but what was determined to try and win the those matches too and so he was uh he was always number three always pushing sometimes he would win games sometimes otherwise al would tell some joking stories about how walt would try and win games which i suspect may have been more to get a laugh than the truth who knows without because he would love to tell a good story but um walt was definitely as was were most people in the office whatever it was whether it was we've just landed in la let's who can get to downey first in the higher car everything was a race everything was a competition and um walt was definitely part of that uh, rules be damned when it came to handball <laughs> as well. Okay, let's move forward a little bit. Obviously, we've mentioned that he was much loved at events uh, for the space community. I happened to see him on a panel uh, for the Apollo 11 50th anniversary at Houston Space Center. And it was great to see him talk about space. Very uh, opinionated, as you two have both said. Very passionate, but also very patriotic. That was something that really struck me about him. What do you think Walt brought to the table as an ambassador for spaceflight? Um, well, Walt was, you know, as we mentioned, very opinionated, and that certainly came the same with politics and the international stage of uh, space relations with the Russians, with the Chinese. Um, it was an evolution for Walt, as he said it. When he left the space program, but first he wanted to go into the business world, which he did pretty successfully, and he said, I don't want to be seen as an astronaut. Why do people keep only think of me as an astronaut? I want to be a successful business person. And then as the years went by, he went, you know, what we did, all of us former astronauts, was absolutely unique. There will only be one Apollo program. People will go back to the moon, but we'll, there's only going to be that first one. And I was lucky to be there in the golden era of spaceflight. So he started to recognize that it was okay to be considered a former astronaut. Um, and eventually, he would describe himself as an ancient astronaut um, to, to get a laugh from the crowd. And uh, that was okay. So he became a spokesperson. He was quite... Um, honest about his place in the program. He said, look, I didn't go to the moon. I didn't walk on the moon. And yet after a while, people don't care. They look at me and go, generic Apollo astronaut. They ask me questions about the moon. I could answer them. I was in the office. I know what the answer is. So I'm just going to talk about the moon as if it's a first-hand answer, but not, not pretend, but I know the answer. So after a while, he became a wonderful spokesperson of that era. Um, in doing so, he was very, very proud of Apollo. And I think that is an, uh, a national pride thing because he recognized this was his tiny little sliver in history that um, he was around for. And at the time, he, as he described it, none of them thought about that. They were too busy doing the job. They weren't mm. thinking, I'm about to fly the first this and I'm going to do this. They're like, is that circuit going to work? How do I do this? I need to meet with the engineer. I need to do this. I need to do that. They were so caught up in the work that it was only decades later they really went, you know, we were part of a very big thing. And uh, that's, I think, what you heard later in life with Walt on those panels. And I was uh, fortunate enough to moderate them right up until some of his last public appearances where um, there were health issues. Um, he and I were talking about what he wanted to do before the panel and nobody in the audience knew it was wonderful. He was so determined to keep talking to the public that we worked out how to um, allow him the voice that he wanted to keep right up until the end of his working life. 
Fantastic. So that kind of brings me to the the following question. Um, I have personally some wonderful memories of Walt throughout the years, you know, at, at space events. Uh, one of them was when Apollo Pilot came out. I showed up to the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation event with my copy of the book, and I don't think you'd seen it yet, Francis. I think we went over and showed it to Walt, and Walt was like, oh, yeah, I took that picture. Like, <laughs> And I was like, wow, you know, just like just to hear that come out of somebody's mouth, like, oh, yeah, I did that, uh, you know. So I have I have a lot of wonderful memories of him. I, I thought he was just funny and just very, very friendly, you know, really easy to talk to. Do you have any favorite Walt moments or Walt stories? Absolutely. You've just reminded me of that one. Yeah, we were you, know, you and I were at the Cape where the mission took off. And um, you had a copy before me of the, the unpublished memoirs of Don Isley, which I managed to find in his widow's closet and it just come out and uh, I didn't have a copy with me. And, and you got to show Walt. We have some wonderful pictures of him somewhere looking through it, beginning to go through it and going, hmm. Yeah, he would say that, wouldn't he? Mm, OK, that's true. But mm, I wouldn't say that way. You know, it was wonderful because <laughs> they were still you know, even long after Donna died, they're still sort of like heckling back and forward in, in, in ways. <laughs> yeah, I think I heard him say at one point, I remember that differently. And I was like, oh, my God, they're still doing this. That, that was the fun of that crew. The three of them never agreed on a thing. And yet they were so <laughs> proud of what they did together. Um, I think Walt said that they he didn't have to have a warm personal friendship with those other two guys, but he had a incredibly high respect for them both, um, particularly with Wally, who he said was one of the best stick and rotor pilots he'd ever flown with. And so um, you don't have to want to hang out with somebody to really enjoy working with them. Personally, Walt and I worked for many years on lots of things, um, was invited to his house for dinner a number of times when in um, Houston, which was always lovely. He was somebody that went a little bit beyond somebody I just worked with. Um, I hosted him for book signings in San Diego. Um, but one of those guys I could always ask questions of, and he'd come back with a very frank and wonderfully opinionated answer, just what I was looking for. But it wasn't a particularly special um, relationship we had because he, as you mentioned, he was friendly with everybody. He was one of those people at those space shows who would always be happy to chat with people, have their pictures taken with people. You know, some people, we're not going to name any names, but Emily, you know who they are, a little bit snootier with some people, a little bit more remote, a little bit more standback. It's like, well, you, you could have your picture with me, but it's going to cost you a thousand dollars. Well, quite the opposite. You know, one of those people like, hey, how you doing? I saw you last time. Very, very, very nice guy in that way. Very relatable. Absolutely a joy to work with on those panels. That's for sure. He was one of those guys who never seemed to age. He still had the buzz cut for a long time. He still had his hair. He still looked relatively youthful for a long time. You go into some of those shows and people would be looking at these 1960s astronaut portraits and looking around the room trying to find some guy who looked like it. And they're looking at 70-year-old guys, 80-year-old guys going, I don't see this person. Walt looked the same. You knew it was Walt right away. I think Walt was one of those guys where you, you wanted him to be your first astronaut because there are times I've seen kids go into rooms and to use an Emily phrase, I'm not naming any names, but you know, you go into a room and you see them excited. I'm going to meet this person. And then it's like, oh, I'm actually less interested in space now because that person <laughs> probably gave it their best talk possible, but they weren't, they weren't grabbing that kid. Um, what was one of those people who was warm and funny and engaging and would make everybody from a you know, child to somebody of his own age feel special. And uh, I'm not just saying that because this is somewhat of a eulogy of a show. I'd have always said this because he was one of those people who knew how to do that um, in some ways for sadder reasons because his line was never as long as the people who flew to the moon or, or, or walked on the moon and that was uh, a shame because Walt had as many great stories as them to tell so he had a little bit more time at some of those shows and he would use that time to make people 
understand what it was and make them feel special and make them feel part of the space program. And that's, that's going to be, he's going to be missed for that. That was a big part of what he was doing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Francis, thank you very much for joining us and sharing all this insight and these stories. It's been really wonderful to hear all about Walt. Now, we want to get you back on again to talk about something that's not a sad news story. So coming up, we've got the 40th anniversary of Sally Ride's mission. And I think you're the perfect person to have and come and talk to us about that. So that's something to look forward to. Also, uh, I just want to thank you again for coming to meet me uh, in England and sign some books for me because that was a really nice moment. I had not realized that you two had never met until this month. And I guess, and I finally back in October got to meet you, Dave, when I was over in England, you were on your way back from some enormous arena sellout rock show you were doing <laughs> up north somewhere and uh, came through Manchester, England, where I was, and we had a lovely breakfast. It was wonderful to to meet you finally. So yeah, I'm, I'm so glad we got to do that. I look forward to the next time. And I will be happy to come back and talk about Sally Ryder. Sally was my boss for a number of years, um, long after she left the space program, running a, a nonprofit um, called Sally Ride Science, getting girls interested in STEM. So I have lots of great Sally stories. And it's terrifying. We're looking at four decades since that flight. I don't know about you two, but that's making me feel kind of old because I remember that one. I remember watching <laughs> yeah, it on television. I remember that one. So I remember I was real little when that flight happened and I had a NASA jacket and stuff. It's like girls are going to space and Amazing. now I'm 45. So because we can talk about Apollo, but Space Shuttle was our space program. So this is yes. why yeah, it's gonna be a good one to talk about. Absolutely. And uh, is there anything else you you're you're working on at the moment you'd like to tell us about? Um, I have a children's book I worked on with a, uh, a one of the very few women to pilot the shuttle. But um, I should be able to tell you a little bit more about that in just a few days. The front cover is going to be released. So um, look for that oh, um, wow. very, very soon. I've used my lockdown for good as much as I can. Yeah, yeah, you sure have. Awesome. All right. We'll keep an eye out for that news as well. Thank you again for joining Thank us, you. mate. Thanks a lot. So make sure you check out the show notes where I will have listed all of the books that Francis has written that you can go and get a copy of. And I thoroughly recommend you do that. His books are amazing. He's interviewed everyone. And as you heard today, you know, he gets the, he gets the good stuff from people and he builds good relationships with these heroes of ours. So someone who I think is definitely worth talking to whenever we can. Yeah, and what I love about uh, Francis's work is that he really has gone for like the missions that you just don't hear about. And Apollo 7 is one of those missions that nobody really wrote about because it wasn't glamorous and there was kind of some controversy. But I love that Francis's work has really set things straight, you know, and I feel like kind of similar to Al Warden. I feel like Walt Cunningham kind of enjoyed a, a third great act because people kind of realize, okay, the stuff that's been written about his mission, a lot of it is, I can't say the word, this is a family show. A lot of it is bull. <laughs> you know, this guy has just done so much. So I feel like Walt kind of enjoyed a really good third act, you know, and, and got to have that, you know, great time in his life. Thanks to writers like Francis, who really helped set the record straight. Absolutely. Um, there was one thing we didn't mention, actually, about his Apollo 7 mission, which is only just dawned on me that we didn't mention it, and that was about photography. There are so many great photos from that mission, and he was the main photographer. I think he did like 80% of the photographs on Apollo 7 or something like that. And the Apollo 7 photography is just 
extraordinary. Obviously, yeah, it's it was beautiful. One, one of the only two Apollo flights of well before you got to Skylab, etc., that orbited the Earth. So they did a lot of Earth observation, which you don't get with the other missions' photography. So uh, yeah, he did a great job for, um, on photography on that mission, which often gets overlooked. I think all, any astronaut and their photography is something that often gets overlooked. You forget that these guys were pilots or something like this, and they became incredible photographers, which is such a skill. It's such a skill to be a good photographer. Yeah. I know we all have phones that can take photos these days, but not many people take good photos. And and we yeah. use filters and all kinds of stuff. They just knew it. They couldn't see what they were doing. They had to know the settings of the camera and all of that. Great photography. Yeah, it, you really had to know what you were doing back then as far as photography is concerned, and he just nailed it. So, yeah, that's another thing that I don't think we talk about is, you know, his skill at chronicling that flight. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I have one Walt Cunningham story which I would like to share. Now, we don't get many events in this country, and I was not really aware of events that were going on that were in this country either, so I, I missed out for a number of years. Anyway, when I came over for the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, and I was at Space Center Houston, and there was a panel, and Walt was on it, and he spoke. And I mentioned this, he was very opinionated, uh, very proud of America. That was something that really struck me. He was very... I mean, almost Captain America-esque, you know, like I know Ron Evans is often referred to as Captain America, but uh, Walt definitely had that vibe about him that he was just really proud of his country and what his country could do, which is always interesting to see as an outsider. We don't normally get that kind of patriotism in our country in the same way, but anyway. Yeah, the nationalism is much different in other countries than it is in the United States. I totally, as somebody who's a former military member, I totally agree. I yeah. totally get it. Uh, it's not a slight on him at all. It was just something that obviously I noticed. So then what happened is obviously that panel finished and I had uh, a tour of the historic mission control. It was the first time I'd been there since it had been obviously only thing. It just been refurbished. And we're in the waiting room at the back, you know, the, the with the red seats looking into the room and they're doing the presentation. It's, it's a beautiful, oh, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Oh my it God, is. I can't say enough. It's, it's so beautiful. Stunning. And, and obviously we're there. And it was the last tour before the 50th anniversary of Neil actually coming down the ladder. So we're looking at it. That's the time frame. And I became aware that someone had walked into the room. A couple of people walked in the room while the presentation was going on. I turned around and it's Walt Cunningham and his wife Dot sitting at the back. And I lose my mind, but I can't lose my mind because obviously he doesn't want attention drawn to himself. I don't I don't want it to become a big thing, but I'm sitting in the Apollo era historic mission control viewing room and I've got an Apollo astronaut sitting right behind me. And I, oh, I just got so excited. I knocked something off my table. Um, I, I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is amazing. This is so cool. And earlier on, it was quite clear after the panel that, that uh, there were people around him didn't want people coming up to him and talk to him which is fine. Um, so I, I didn't want to, didn't want to do it, but I was like, I've got to get a photo of Walt <laughs> and like me being here. So I was trying to take the most awkward selfie from a distance, like <laughs> the most awkward photo of just, oh yeah, there's like slipping down in my seat and him just being there. But oh, I, I've kind of, it was one of those like selfies that you kind of feel bad about taking because you know that they are just trying to have their little moment somewhere and you don't want to disturb them. But at the same time, I couldn't be in that room with an Apollo astronaut and not document it. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. No, I, that's freaking awesome to be in there with somebody who was actually, you know, that really like there with the missions and stuff like that. That is 
freaking incredible and just yeah i would probably be flipping out too because i'm like dude this person is a living legend and you know he's he's here and yeah it, that's really awesome yeah and i'm in his domain i'm in the area where he made it happen yep. you know it was that kind of vibe i was exactly yeah, i was buzzing. exactly i was buzzing that is awesome that's a great story yeah and <laughs> like i said and i talked a little bit about it during the interview with francis I did get to interact with him several times over the last few, you know, the last decade or so. He was just a really stand-up guy. I remember when I first met him, I was I was terrified because I'd read the All-American Boys, and I was like, man, he comes off as kind of a jerk in this book. And I don't mean that in a bad way, like, man, he's mean, but he does not hold back on how he feels, even about people who are like sacred cows. Like, there are a few people he talks about in that book, and I'm like, oh, nobody's ever said anything about this person that was critical that I remember, like, he judged McDivitt for being too detailed. Like, yeah, there I'm you like, go. what? Nobody goes after this guy. And, and Walt was like, yeah, he was too, de- he was so detailed. He would work things to death. And I'm like, God dang it, Walt, you need to chill. So when I first met um, met Walt, I was a little nervous. But really, I there was no need. He was very friendly. He was happy that I had the book with me and that I'd read it. I do have another memory of him. Well, if you've read The All-American Boys, he talks a lot about certain, um, I don't know how to put this nicely. This is a family show. He talks about Jack Swigert's dating habits. <laughs> but the thing is as well, when you when you factor that in, this was Jack was still alive at that point. So to write yes! about that then is kind of, what? <laughs> it's Yeah, because I'm reading this book and I'm like, holy crap, he's really talking about how Jack was just a player. And then I'm like, and then it hit me, Jack was alive. So yeah. he could have, Jack is probably reading this like, you know, what the hell? Like, <laughs> dude, don't give away all my secrets. But anyway, I think that's hysterical. So I I, I actually talked to Walt. I was like, look, I got to ask you a question. And he's like, okay, what? It's like, Jack Swagger, you know, uh, what was it really like working with him? You know, and he was like, oh, yeah, you know, Jack was awesome to work with. He was very intelligent. He was very professional. He was a great pilot and engineer. But his dating habits left a little bit to be desired. He was not a great romantic like he thought he was. And I was like, (laughs) and he was laughing when he was saying that. He's like, yeah, he wasn't a great romantic like he thought he was. And I was like, oh, my God. Certainly was no Kevin Bacon. No, 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 no. And yeah, like I said, I love that you brought it up. I remember when I first read this book and it hit me. I'm like, dude, Jack was alive when this was written. Amazing. So he absolutely was like, God dang it. Somebody sold out my my love, my love secrets. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Amazing. this is awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah, I have wonderful memories of Walt. And he was just a great guy and always, always fun to talk to. And um, I know he'll be terribly missed. Absolutely. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed this celebration of the life of Walt Cunningham. You're listening to the Space and Things podcast with Dave Giles and Emily Carney. So, Emily, what's caught your eye in the world of spaceflight since we recorded before Christmas? been a while now since we've done one of these. Yes. I don't think we've previously discussed this, so I'll just bring it up here, is the uh, the Soyuz leak. The leak that uh, yeah, happened with the Soyuz. That story is nuts one night i was doing my my nightly workout and i'm i'm walking around my neighborhood trying to get all my steps in and all of a sudden i i see this story and i mean there is just fluid basically the uh soyuz spring a, a coolant leak and it was quite severe uh the footage of it if you can find it 
Um, I'm sure we'll have it in our notes, but the footage of it is really quite terrifying because, I mean, it it kind of is reminiscent of Apollo 13. I was when, just about you know, to say yeah. that. It's that whole, uh, Houston, we are venting something into outer space. Like, you imagine looking yeah. out, being on the space station, looking out at your return craft home and seeing that it's venting something into space. That's got to be scary. Yeah, I mean, it's just terrifying, you know, and, and just, you know, and seeing it on social media is kind of weird too because you're like you know you you just feel like wow well <laughs> we're just spectators looking at this unfold you know it's very strange but yeah so obviously that uh sprung a leak and um it's taken several weeks for roscosmos to really come up with a, a solution but i'm hearing and i've gotten this from some sources on twitter is that they're gonna try to um Basically, that spacecraft is going to be trashed. They're not going to put people on it and try to bring them home, which is probably prudent, <laughs> probably for the best, because you don't want to try that out and find out, you know, yeah. the tragic way that it's not going to do its job. And um, they're going to send up another Soyuz, bring down the Russian crew mates, and they're going to try to bring the uh, remaining American who went up on the Soyuz on a SpaceX uh, Dragon capsule. But... It may owe to the fact that, you know, the the relations with the international relations with Russia are obviously not at their best right now. But I'm very surprised this hasn't been a bigger story because it's just scary to me that, you know, something went that wrong in space. And now we have to essentially rescue people to come back. You know, that's not a good thing. I think it goes to show how safe everyone on Earth seems to view the space station. Yeah, I, I think we tend to view it as, oh, but they're up there, you know, safe. And I'm like, space is never going to be safe. I'm yeah. sorry. Like, I I love space flight. I'll always be fascinated with it. And I think it's incredible that we humans can achieve such things, but it's never going to be safe. You're always going to be in a, an environment when where things can break yeah. all of a sudden, you know, and things can change really fast and, and people's lives are in the balance. So it's never going to be routine. I totally yeah. agree with you. I think it speaks to the fact that people just think, oh, yeah, well, they're safe up there, right? And I'm like, I don't know, you know? <laughs> so Yeah, I'm, su- I'm surprised it's not a bigger story as well. I think it's it's quite surprising it's not a bigger story. Yeah. As we said, the images alone of the of the, of the leak were, were, were crazy. But then the fact that they didn't really know what they were going to do, how it was going to happen, are they going to be rescued? How are they going to get them home? Uh, yeah. Were they all going to end up in one SpaceX capsule at one point? Was was SpaceX going to save the day, as uh, people on the internet love always thinking that they can do all the time for any problem ever? Yeah. Uh, but it, it's it's certainly a crazy scenario that we've got ourselves into. Yeah, and I'm sure SpaceX's capsules had their own operating parameters where they can't probably fit a certain amount of people in there, and they don't have enough seats for everybody. Well, but that's why I'm surprised by this story that the, the American astronaut will come home in the SpaceX capsule because yeah. he's got his suit up there. I, I'm surprised he's still not coming down in the new capsule that they send up. Uh, yeah, I don't. That's what I've that. just heard. I mean, that's just what I've I've heard sort of through the grapevine. But um, if I'm incorrect about anything, somebody please shoot us an email or correct me. That's fine. I will not take offense to it. Um, this story is still really unfolding. It's evolving, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's still evolving. Yeah. I, I think probably within the next few months, <laughs> we'll probably learn even more about it that we didn't know now. You know, because yeah. remember that crazy story a few years back 
where they tried blaming somebody for that that hole that was drilled. Yeah. And the Russians were like, oh, yeah, somebody did that. And I'm like, no, they did. What? Yeah, what yeah, 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 absolutely. And that took a while to unfold. Took a few months for people to really figure out, OK, what caused that? And the Russians tried to con- sort of savvily misdirect from <laughs> probably the fact that somebody just screwed up, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and put a hole in there. So enough of my ranting. Uh, and what about you, Dave? What has caught your eye? Well, obviously, uh, it's it's Tuesday the 10th of January as we record. And uh, last night, Emily, I don't know if you're aware of this, they attempted a launch from the UK, which obviously I have to talk about. Virgin Orbit launched. Well, I'm going to come across like I'm not excited about it. Uh, of course I'm excited about it, but I don't think this is exciting as other things that are going on in Britain right now. We've got a couple of launch sites being built in Scotland, which I know are super remote and going to be hard to get to, but this Cornwall site where where the 747 took the rocket away from the UK and then the rocket launched somewhere closer to Spain uh, than the UK, but yeah. people are saying it launched from the UK. Okay, I don't think it did, but <laughs> it launched Probably from... closer the, to the Canary Islands yeah, or something like that. It, it, it launched from underneath a plane which took off from the UK. Okay, if we're going to call that a launch, a space launch from the UK, fine, we'll call it a space launch from the UK. However, From a sovereign U- UK aircraft, there you go. Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, great <laughs> it's uh, but but it's it an counts. interesting story so uh, obviously virgin orbit uh, if we dig a little deeper virgin orbit are in a little bit of financial trouble they've they've had five missions and one of them failed and they put a lot of pr effort into this idea that oh look we're going to become a, a company which can launch from mo- multiple different sites and they can in theory they can however the rocket didn't reach orbit it reached space but it didn't reach orbit there was a problem with a second stage so now it's a rocket which has flown six times and failed twice doesn't matter where it launches from for an early days rocket a rocket that's fairly new that's not bad that's not too bad as we know space is hard that's not too bad however the current climate doesn't allow for that kind of success rate, especially when it's a privately funded rocket and not a government funded rocket. When you're relying on shareholders for your investment, 66.66% success rate isn't good enough. No, it's not. And that's the sad reality of of, the, of private spaceflight, which perhaps we don't talk about enough. You know, this, uh, how are Astra going to survive after their failures? Are, are Virgin Orbit going to be able to survive this? Especially when this was essentially a big PR exercise. The British yeah. media were going mental about this. Yeah, It was great that space was being talked about in this country, for sure. But as a result, all eyes were on it. And I didn't watch the webcast, but by all accounts, the webcast wasn't great. Did you see the screenshot that had it like the? the it, I where have it, like, seen went that past screenshot. The speed of it went past like the speed of light. I was like, holy sh! That's Shoot. amazing. Yeah. I mean, they didn't make orbit, <laughs> but they made the speed of light. <laughs> absolutely. Which is, which is, I mean, that's an achievement, I guess. But right? if you, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but if you if you're going to direct the whole country's eyes to a to a project. It needs needs to go well. It's, it's like we were talking about with Artemis One. That had to go well, and yes. and I think this was Virgin's equivalent of that. They wanted to bring it to this country, I think, because they realised if it went right, they had an access to a big market of investors in this country that were potentially there. I don't know where they go from here now. It hasn't reached orbit. They're putting out statements today. Well, it was still a success. Blah 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 blah. blah. 
you know, lots of positives from this. We've now got this spaceport in Cornwall, and, and that is cool. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of cool stuff that's happened as a result of this. But I really fear for Virgin Orbit in this, yeah. in this scenario. And I think they've put a lot of eggs in the basket that the UK is going to help them out. And they put a lot of eyes on it as a result in the UK. And then it's not worked. That's dangerous for them. Yeah. It's really hard, I think, in private spaceflight because we always talk about failing up. Like, and I think with like NASA and governmental spaceflight, there were, I don't know if this is the right way to put it. There were instances of where I feel like NASA failed up. Like they, they failed on something, but they got it right the next time, you know, but it's a different situation because NASA is funded by the government. So the government, you know, can give you another chance and okay, you know, nobody's going to lose their job or lose a lot of money, you know, stuff like that. You know, private space, I think is a lot different. Yeah. It's a lot different. You can fail up, but you can also lose your business, you know? And obviously the moment a private space company fails in a launch, the internet goes, well, SpaceX wouldn't have looked fat. Yeah. Or ULA wouldn't have done this. And ULA is sort of a private public company as well. I want to emphasize that. And SpaceX absolutely needed the government, US government funding yes. that it got as well. Correct. So you are, I, you're right. I know for a fact that Virgin Orbit has had a huge influx of money from the British government because they tried to bring it to, to Britain. And yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know for certain, maybe they'd had an American, it's an American company. I don't know if they'd had American investment before. I don't know if NASA invested in it before, quite possibly. But what they've done here is they've put themselves in a position where they've tried to get the UK government spaceflight money. And yeah. then they've fouled. If the UK government now say, don't worry, we'll give you another $500 million. I don't think that's going to float right now because we're talking about more cuts to more things. We've got nurses on strike. We've got all these things. Yeah. yeah and you I guys know have other problems. We've got other problems. And I think the government will struggle to justify spending money on space. I, and which is the argument we've had over and over again about, these kind of things about funding for space program. And we obviously love to see it, but I, yeah. I understand it. if it's government funded, sometimes things have got to give. And if you just had exactly. a failed mission, it's harder to justify spending the money on that. So I'm sure the UK government can find other things to invest in with space if they want to. And there's plenty of invested investment going on, but I think this has just made it quite hard for Virgin and, and that's really sad. And it's another reminder space is hard and, it, and, Shame for those payloads. Uh, at least there wasn't a crew on board. Absolutely. To all you kids down there, I was once a child with a dream, looking up to the stars. Now I'm an adult in a spaceship with lots of other wonderful adults looking down to a beautiful, beautiful Earth. To the next generation of dreamers, if we can do this, just imagine what you can do. So thank you very much for listening. It's all we have time for this week. Something exciting next week away from the from our podcast. 
Emily and I are taking part in an online conversation hosted by the Cosmosphere and including our friend John Molnix of the Space Shop podcast to discuss how to make a space podcast. So if you're free on Thursday the 19th of January at 10am Eastern Time, then come and join us. I'll be posting a link to the event within our show notes and keep an eye out on social media too. I do believe it will also get posted after the event uh, as part of the Cosmosphere's podcast as well. Looking forward to that one a lot. Yes, very much looking forward to that. Uh, We've also done some good brainstorming this week to make plans for some future episodes. So it should be a fun year for us, and we hope that you continue to join us. But don't forget, in space, no one can hear you in space. (laughs) Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.